You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at OppenheimerFunds.com. Welcome to another edition of the Culture Caucus Podcast. I'm John Heilman. And I am Will Leach. And we are here today, uh, yet again, me in a state of state of sadness and despond at the fact that I'm here in New York City in our incredible, fabulous podcasting studios, podcasting mission control without Will. Will is on the road, not near me, not able to see me face to face. Will, where are you right now? I am in St. Louis, Missouri, across the street uh, from Bush Stadium, where the best baseball team in the history of the sport, in fact, I would say the history of any sport, plays baseball. The St. Louis Cardinals. I you're a you're a you're a gro- you're you're a grotesque and obviously mistaken, <laughs> somewhat delusional person. Someone doesn't like championships. Well, I love championships, <laughs> but what I don't love is the is is just the just the corpulence of the mm. fan base in St. Louis. You show up, you go to the ghost games, and those people are just so vast. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that today. We're we've done sports on this uh, podcast the last couple episodes, and we're now going to divert from that and talk today about the. About a very specific thing and then a more general thing. The specific thing is the HBO film Confirmation about the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas imbroglio from 1991. And the more general thing is the question of docudramas, political docudramas, and the challenges involved in making them um, and uh, the role that they now play in our political discourse. Will, um, let's just remind people real quickly right now Culture Caucus, this podcast can be found where? Can we find the best way to find us is to subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, please give us a nice review that helps people find the podcast. You can also find us on SoundCloud and, of course, on BloombergPolitics.com. I find it kind of awesome. I like talking about where you can find this podcast in the middle of the podcast because, of course, anybody who's listening to this has already found the podcast. So I'm not really sure why we do this, but we're supposed to. Will, you've seen this movie on HBO, the movie Confirmation. This is a movie that's got – it's an HBO production. It's got – Big stars in it. Kerry Washington, of course, from Scandal, plays Anita Hill. Wendell Pierce, most famous from The Wire, as Bunk Moreland, plays Clarence Thomas. Uh, you got Greg Kinnear doing an incredible job, in my view, playing uh, Joe Biden. He has the, the he has Biden's vocal intonations down perfectly. Eric Stone Street plays Ken Duberstein, former White House chief of staff to Ronald Reagan, and and sort of Sherpa for Clarence Thomas when he was going through his confirmation hearings, and a whole bunch of other stars. So it's a typical HBO production in the sense that they went all out. Um, and I'll say, and I know we'll talk about this shortly, I have some experience uh, not just dealing with docudramas, but with dealing with HBO docudramas, having been involved in the making of the movie Game Change. They are 
incredible professionals, incredible movie makers, and they when they decide to do a big uh, historical biopic like this, or not a biopic, but a docudrama, they go all out. They get a great cast. They get a great director. Um, they get a great screenplay. Uh, they promote the thing like crazy, and that's all been the case with Confirmation, uh, which just debuted on the on last Saturday and is obviously now playing on HBO all the time. You can go get it, obviously, on HBO uh, HBO Go and on, uh, on on demand with HBO, and then it's got showings all throughout this month. Um, so, Will, I just let's start with just the question of you watched it, I watched it. What'd you think of it? You know, I gotta say, I didn't think it was great. To be entirely honest, it it, it really feels, you know, one of the things that's happened a lot in recent, you know, television culture. Everyone's very obsessed with prestige television. They're obsessed with the idea that, like, not only is this television, this television that's good for you. And I feel like a lot of the best stuff of that is stuff that remembers that it's also supposed to be fun. The best example of, of this recently is probably The People versus O.J. Simpson, which is this very prestige, just going to win a bunch of Emmys, and, it was, and everybody loves it, very well regarded, but also has that, you know, that 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 Murphy... Uh, American Horror Story, crazy, campy kind of fun to it. It has both those things. My issue with Confirmation is it's it, it takes Wendell Pierce and Kerry Washington, two incredibly charismatic actors who are very entertaining and, and can bring a lot to a role like this and basically handcuffs them. It doesn't allow them to really show any charisma at all. The movie is so kind of obsessed with being a... Did it? Uh, is he right or is she right? Well, and and then the response to all that, as opposed to really digging into what makes either one of these people tick, it feels a little bit like a chamber piece. And to compare it, some of like, I'm sure we're obviously going to talk about Game Change in a little bit. But one of the things I like about Game Change a lot more than this is Game Change is fun. Like Game Change, in addition to being like a document of the thing that happened, it's also really lively and it's like it's moving quickly and it's fast. This feels like a prestige picture in a way that almost the old 50s uh, uh, assembly line RKO would make. Well, this is our, this is out in putt and picture. And it feels like this prestige picture in a way that I think sucks a lot of the life and the fun out of it. Right. You know, I think one of the things that, I mean, look, to be fair, and, you know, I'll never say a bad word about Game Change just because um, HBO did us so right in so many ways in terms of how they made the movie. And it was obviously well received. And, and, and we had an incredibly kind of dreamlike experience in dealing with them, both in terms of um, the quality of the people that were involved and the execution of the story and the fealty to what we wrote in the book, what Mark Halpern and I wrote in the book that were there, that HBO and the people involved, Danny Strong, the screenwriter, and Jay Roach, the director, were both obsessed with the idea of trying to be true to the book, which I think is not the case for the experience that a lot of authors have when they see their books made into docudramas. So for us, the, I think we were at the far end of the extreme of how wonderful an experience uh, this could be. But to be fair to this movie, I'd say, you know, uh, I agree with you. There's not a sense of fun. There's not a sense of joie de vivre in the movie. But this is a very different kind of topic. I mean, there's, you know, a presidential campaign, um, the experience of putting Sarah Palin on the ticket, what was trying to be captured there had elements of humor, had elements of the absurd, had elements of um, the, the kind of the, the shambolic kind of chaos of any presidential campaign. You can find a lot more humor in that than you can in the contentious high stakes drama of uh, a Supreme Court nomination about to be potentially derailed by charges of sexual harassment. Um, these are like more serious topics, obviously, uh, and and ones where the opportunities for humor are not nearly as abundant as they were in the context of game change. That said, dark humor is always possible, and this movie does not have a lot of it. I agree with that. And the other thing that's true, I think, that you're getting at, Will, I think, for me, is that I don't feel as though... Uh, 
that I got to understand either of these characters better by watching the movie than I did before. And I think, you know, there's a, there's, there's always a, um, a, there's always a balance. How much backstory do you want to do in a movie like this? And how much you just want to tell the story of the drama, right? It's a tight narrative. This movie really takes place over the course essentially of three days of congressional testimony. And so the question is, how much of the backstory of Anita Hill do you want to give a viewer so that they understand who this woman is, where she's coming from? You get a little bit of that in this movie with uh, Anita Hill's family. Um, you get a little bit of it with Clarence Thomas and his relationship to his wife. But there's a lot that as you see them going through this moment of high drama in which they are contradicting each other's stories, absolutely, it's hard to, um, to, know, to, to even have your judgment about who's telling the truth informed by any assessment of their character because there's so little backstory. And to me, that is where the movie kind of fell short in certain ways. Um, and and I, I agree with you that, that both of those actors, who I think do a pretty good job in the movie, um, uh, given what the material is they're working with, I, I would like to have understood them better, have, to have, have their characters portrayed as characters in full a little bit more, so that the drama, which is essentially a he said, she said, somebody's lying, somebody's not, there's not really a lot of gray area here. You know, either the things that Anita Hill said were true or not things Clarence Thomas said were true or not, I'd like to, it would have been nice to have a little bit of a greater sense of intuition about who do I believe here? And if someone is lying, why are they lying? And that was kind of lacking in the movie from my point of view. Yeah. And, you know, one thing the movie could do to, if, if the movie doesn't really doesn't want to take a stance on who's lying and who's telling the truth, which sort of strangely, it doesn't, even though, as I think we'll talk about with our, with our guests, there's a lot of evidence that I think leans clearly to one side on who was telling the truth on this and who wasn't. But the movie still clearly doesn't want to do that. The, clearly, the movie doesn't want to take a stance on either side. Well, then then you need to treat that as a given and then get into almost exclusively the backroom politics that came to make this come together. The What Joe Biden was going through uh, and Ted Kennedy and Alan Simpson and all these people that are on this committee. That needs to be what the movie's about then and in a way that like Veep never shows the president, for example, <laughs> or, uh, you know. That, that kind of idea where if you're not going to get into who they are and you're not going to get into who's telling the truth, then this needs to be only about the backroom stuff. So the fact that it's a little bit about that and then a little, a little bit about backroom stuff and then a little bit about them, I think ends up giving us not enough of either. So one of the things that you just mentioned our guest who I, we failed to promo earlier in the podcast, but I will now is Jane Mayer from The New Yorker, who uh, is the author of a great new book called Dark Money um, about basically about the Koch brothers. We'll talk with Jane not about that, but we'll talk about her experience of watching this movie. Um, from the unique uh, vantage point of someone who previously wrote a book about the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas uh, confirmation hearings, a book called Strange Justice that she wrote with uh, Jill Abramson, who used to be the managing editor of the New York Times. That book was a controversial book when it came out in the late 1990s. She had that book made into a movie called Strange Justice that appeared on Showtime, a docudrama. And now this movie is being remade as a docudrama on HBO. So Jane will have a lot to say, I think, probably about about. First of all, the experience of being an author who's had a book made into a docudrama and now seeing it made into another docudrama and what the various issues are and why this all still has so much resonance in America today, like why people still, 25 years later, still care about Clarence Thomas beyond the fact that he's on the Supreme Court and why they still care about, care about Anita Hill. There was just a documentary, I believe, done about Anita Hill a couple of years ago that was out on the festival circuit. So people still care about her, even though she's now largely um, become an anonymous citizen again, not a big public figure. So we'll talk about all that with her. But one of the questions I have for you, Will, just as someone who does film criticism, right, is how much do you care? 
about the historical accuracy of these movies. This Every time there's a docudrama, and this was true with Game Change, and it's true with this movie, there's always some controversy leading up to the release of the movie, um, and always some often controversy after the movie comes out, with did the movie take too many liberties with the truth? Um, is the movie uh, accurate? Is the movie... Uh, does the movie do violence, active violence to the truth? Um, as a, as a, as both just a, as just a smart viewer, and as a film critic, like is that a, is that a factor that matters to you to a great degree? And and just explain why or why not. I don't think it really matters. I think you need there needs to be an emotional truth of the movie, and and I know that sounds like a little bit of a cop out, particularly you know for someone who's a journalist. But I do think you know, they're not documentaries. So the, the example I always use of this is probably the Social Network. You know, and the Social Network is basically you know Mark Zuckerberg. Almost none of that was true. <laughs> like like some of that was true in the idea that like the case of whether he took some of uh, uh, whether he t- taken the idea of Facebook. That's certainly up for debate. But the idea that he did this because he was upset that a woman broke up with him and therefore did all of these things is just not true. <laughs> it's just it's it's just it was Aaron Sorkin's views on the internet, and he poured that into Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg is not like that at all. I think we actually have now a, a lot of years of evidence that Mark Zuckerberg is clearly not like that at all. But it got to this emotional truth that wasn't really about Mark Zuckerberg but was about the internet and about the way that we kind of interact with one another and the way we kind of treat one another sometimes. So to me, that if there's an emotional truth in the movie, I don't need it to stick case to case on that. But 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 again, that's a, diff- that's a movie that really is about David Fincher and, and, and this great performance by Jesse Eisenberg. That's about a movie that's about a larger thing than just one guy. Whereas, for example, with Game Change, for you guys, that would be weird if suddenly just it completely veered off script. And all of a sudden, there were, you know, it, it, the Inglorious Bastards problem where they kill Hitler. <laughs> like, it's just a different, it's just a different ending uh, uh, sort of idea. I think you have to, it really depends on the type of movie and what the aim of it is. For a movie like this, I think you kind of have to stick close to the truth a little bit if you're not going to make this larger uh, kind of issue about what it meant and and where everything stood and where everything was going. The, like, for example, again, the the hot docudrama of the moment is still The People versus O.J. Simpson. And I think that is another example of the, something that show did very well in that it got to essential emotional truths, even if they didn't know, know exactly if that's the way it went down. Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden's relationship being the best example of that. They're, they – that is true to the emotional truth of the story. Even when you saw Marsha Clark interviewed, she said, listen, that didn't happen, but it might as well have. And I think that's the goal that you want to get of a docudrama is to get the emotional truth of it, even if it's not, uh, it meets strict journalistic requirements. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think that, you know, that we, as we went through this with Game Change, one of the things that we we had to confront this, and, and one of the things that you, that you know is that in a hyper-polarized uh, media environment that um, the, the thing that can wreck the reception of such a movie is if, they, if it is seen to do, I think, do violence to the truth, to, to present things that are wildly inaccurate or out of context. You know, in Game Change, there's a scene where Woody Harrelson playing Steve Schmidt, you know, makes a phone call to John McCain from like a broom closet. Was the phone call made from a broom closet in reality? No. Do, who cares where the phone call was made from? The question is, is the phone call, was the phone call made? And was the, were the things that Woody Harrelson said or I should say, Steve Schmidt said to John McCain, a.k.a. Woody Harrelson saying them to Ed Harris, are those true? And for us, you know, the, some, the things that were kind of, that were not central, you know, that there was some amount of character compression, scene compression, time compression, you can live with all that, 
as long as the, the, the fundamental things that altered the trajectory of the narrative are correct. And it's important not just because as journalists you want to be you want to tell the truth, but also because just as a weapon against critics, you want to be able to say, um, look, this is this this movie represents an accurate translation of this book, and the book represents an accurate account on the basis of hundreds of hours of interviews and, and, and hundreds of uh, sources. And this is what, you know, we presented the absolute truth in the book. The movie has presented um, something where on everything that matters, the truth is represented. And that the only things that are worth liberties have been taken on are things where the necessities of movie making made it important, where, where you had to do those things in order to get the movie made and present a complicated story in the course of two hours. That was what Game Change, I think, achieved. And and I think there's a, um, uh, uh, there's, I'm, obviously I can't, I can't talk to uh, the Anita Hill, speak to the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings in quite the same way or with anything like that kind of authority. We can talk to Jane a little bit about that in a second. But I do think that on the basis of what I've read, at least, um, this movie also does not do violence to the truth. And to me, that's the most important uh, kind of standard beyond the question of how uh, entertaining it is and, and whether it reveals deeper emotional truths. Um, so... Uh, we're now going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk to Jane Mayer um, about Confirmation, the new HBO docudrama about the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill confirmation hearings from 1991 that introduced, in many ways, the subject of, uh, of, of sexual harassment to the American public, um, introduced complicated issues of politics and race uh, that made it an explosive thing in 1991 and something that still has enduring uh, resonance with an awful lot of Americans. We'll be right back with Jane Mayer. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com. And we're back with part two of this installment of the Culture Caucus, talking about docudramas, talking about the movie Confirmation, talking about the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas controversy, still alive all these year, years later, and here to welcome a fabulous person, a great guest, an old friend from The New Yorker, the great Jane Mayer, author of Dark Money. What's the subtitle of your book, Jane? The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. That's a great book, and if you want to understand the financial uh, edifice that now comprises uh, the rightward side of the political spectrum, you need to read Jane's book, Dark Money, because you can really learn a lot about the Koch brothers. There are probably more than you could have learned from anybody ever anyplace else. It's an incredible book. But we're not actually talking about that today. Um, although we probably should come back and talk about that more later. Um, we're talking about this movie and about the whole issues, all the issues that revolve around the question of docudramas. But the interesting thing about this and the reason that Jane is here is because in addition to having written Dark Money and other brilliant books, she wrote a book a long time ago now with Jill Abramson, a book called Strange Justice, which was about the Hill Thomas brouhaha. And even more interestingly, that book was made into a movie back in 1999 by the same name. And I, I want to just, Jane, I want to start by asking you this question um, before we talk about movies. Just, I just want to talk about the story itself to begin with. So the, the Hill-Thomas hearings were 25 years ago. Uh, you wrote a book about it. They made a movie about it. It came out in 1999. Um, it's now 17 years after that. And there's another movie about it. So what is it 
about this story that has such enduring power? Like, why do we still care about Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas? Why is that still a story that people like now HBO would cast and make a movie about 25 years after it happened? There have been a lot of scandals since then, some of them much steamier and more consequential, or maybe not more consequential, but certainly much steamier than that. So why does this still matter to Americans? Because it clearly does. Well, so I would argue that one of the reasons we're still talking about this and some a reason and something that was captured in confirmation um, was it was an unusual scandal in that both sides were incredibly vehement and eloquent and it was really usually in a scandal you have something that develops somebody is the bad guy and um, you know is embarrassed and then goes slinks off into history in this case you had two people who just held their ground round after round after round. It was like a prize fight. And you kept watching them thinking, oh my God. I mean, they they were they both seemed like they were telling the truth. They both had so much at stake that they were, I, I mean, you just don't usually see a fight that's quite um, this tough. And with people who were both very dignified and um, well-spoken and compelling. I mean, it was just an incredible showdown. And that was captured, I think, all over again in, in confirmation. And I give it props for that. I find plenty of other things to complain about it, but I think it, it, it really did capture that. And, and you could see it on the faces of the media as they covered it. And they used um, real clips of the newscasters during the period when the, the hearings were taking place. And they were shocked and they were, everybody was baffled about, so which one of these people is telling the truth? Right. So there's that. And, and, you know, I imagine when you were covering it at the time, you were among those people who were shocked and mortified and you couldn't turn it off. I mean, it, I, 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 and I was talking to a few other friends about it recently. Not, none of us could, because it, it, it has the quality of a really great criminal trial. I, and I used to cover courts where when each of the lawyers gets up, you believe them. And, um, so there just aren't that many political dramas really where you're not sure who is right and who is wrong. Most people come to politics with a point of view about who they believe and, um, and there's a bad guy and a good guy. In this case, they were, they were, you know, you believed each of them as they talked. It was sort of incredible. The, the, two, the two other things that strike me watching the movie and thinking about this are that, you know, the first, that they, they obviously touch on two really profound, um, uh, visceral, cultural strains, right? One of which is sexual harassment. And it's interesting to watch the movie because people didn't really have the language to even talk about what they were seeing. You know, we've come so far in 25 years in terms of our understanding of sexual harassment as a phenomenon. You know, the, the, the legal edifice around it, the way in which we have experienced it, it it's part of the public discourse at that time. I'm not, it's not the first time that people had ever discussed public, sexual harassment in public, but at this level, it really brought into the national discourse a discussion of sexual harassment that I don't think had really had any precedent prior to that when this actually happened in 1991. I mean, truly, having been in the workplace during those years, what Anita Hill described as having happened to her was happening in offices all over America, and none of us even knew it was a crime, really. I mean, it was just sort of typical kind of the, the, the dynamic of dealing with male bosses, it happened all the time. And to, to learn that there might be a remedy to this and that you could complain about it and 
stop somebody from doing this to you was incredibly empowering to women all over the country watching this thing. Everybody just stopped in their tracks. And the men did too. I mean, I remember a lot of men complaining afterwards that offices weren't as fun as they used to be and right. now they had to walk on eggshells and they were so worried they couldn't even tell someone that she looked good that day. And, right. you know, they, everybody was suddenly put on notice right. by this thing. There's a moment in the movie where you hear, where you hear uh, Senator Simpson, Alan Simpson, say just kind of as he's kind of standing up for uh, for, for Clarence Thomas in the course of where he's having an inter in a moment of, in not interrogation, but an interrogatory with, with Thomas where he kind of blithely kind of says something like the sexual harassment crap as if as if the concept itself is inherently ridiculous um and it, it again it's a time capsule moment because of course now no one in public life no matter how conservative no matter how liberal no matter where you are no one in public life could ever make a kind of off-handed comment like that about sexual harassment and survive but this was the hinge this was the moment when everybody woke up to this thing and it was no longer crap it was crime Right. And then the second thing, it seems to me, that's, that obviously is why it continues to have resonance. So the sexual harassment, workplace relations between genders, that obviously is an issue that's evolved a lot in 25 years, but there, it's, still, it's still freighted. It's still um, tense. It's still, there are still discussions of it all the time. It's still something that everybody deals with. We deal with it in a really different way now. So that's one reason why it's still relevant to look at this and why I think it still touches a chord. Another thing is race, right, where, again, our discourse has evolved a lot in 25 years. But seeing Clarence Thomas remembering in a vivid way how sort of shocking on some level it was when he plays the race card in his first defense of himself and talking about uppity blacks and talking about a high tech lynching. I know these are now part of, you know, they're part of our political memory of this, but to see it again, even in a dramatic, in a dramatized form, reminds you of what a kind of bold political gambit it was on his part to play that card in that way as a conservative in that moment? You know, it's always bothered me that people see it as a showdown about race because it seems to erase the reality, which is Anita Hill was black too. And you see in the film where, where Ted Kennedy finally makes that point. Um, this is a black woman who's, making, who's bringing these charges. But, um, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas, who has made a career out of saying he opposes all sort of race-based uh, remedies and he doesn't think that, you know, uh, blacks should be dealt with as victims, played the ultimate victim in this, where he suddenly says he's being lynched um, by a high-tech lynching. And it, it, was, it, it was an audacious move, um, and it worked. We'll jump on in. Yeah, one of the things I find fascinating about this, you talk about the idea of there not being villains and, and, and you know, they, they these two strong characters kind of coming back at one another. It's fascinating to watch the way that Clarence Thomas, you know, the, in the last 20 years, Clarence Thomas kind of famously has, doesn't even talk in the Supreme Court. Like, he's gone almost silent. And to see, you know, to me, the Clarence Thomas, and I, I, I was, I was in, I believe it was in high school uh, when this happened, so I remember it a little bit, but like, you know, when, when I look at the Clarence Thomas last 20 years, he's someone that's kind of uh, uh, vanished in plain sight in a lot of ways. And so to see this, like, really this one moment that appears 
to have defined the way that he deals with the public, the way that he deals with any with any sort of outside questioning. It feels like he was – the movie doesn't get – he's just kind of this, this almost distant character in a way that seems to have reflected – uh, the way he is kind of in the, in the past of that. I'm curious, do you think, Thomas, the way that he has been on the court for the last 20 years was affected by this incident uh, and, and was a different kind of public figure because of it? I think for sure. I mean, I have been told by people who deal with him that he is deeply embittered. He um, is, is – he, he – this has completely changed his whole life forever. Um, and so, it, you know, I mean – I would argue, though, that um, one of the things that the, the, the writer of, of, of Confirmation said is that no one won this this particular showdown because, I guess, because Clarence Thomas is, you know, living under this cloud forevermore. But um, to, what interests me is he's acting like he's still the victim. He did win. And, and there was a winner. He was confirmed. He was confirmed despite the overwhelming um, evidence that it, it's, it's not conclusive, but it's pretty, there's a preponderance of evidence that he lied under oath in order to get confirmed. And, um, you know, and I, so, so he was the winner of this match, yet he goes on to portray himself as a victim forever. How do you think this case would have gone? You know, it's interesting the movie starts with Bork because it kind of sets the tone of, hey, these were starting to get very contentious anyway, and this is how far uh, – this is the type of environment that you were coming into. I'm curious if something like this now with like kind of the, the language that the, we, we have and the way that we talk about this – it, first of it feels like you know the notion Anita Hill would have been found by a blog or a Twitter somewhere on Twitter somewhere uh, long long before this the minute yeah, years going out like the way that even Supreme Court nominees are almost groomed for twenty years and they they stay out of the public eye could this even could something like this kind of battle happen now or is everyone so pre vetted that it couldn't even get to that point. You know, I, I, I think probably in the age of Twitter, there'd be an awful lot more out there. But this was kind of an inside job, really, what was happening behind the scenes in the Senate. And um, part of the reason that Jill Abramson and I wrote our book, it took us three years to do it. It was a ton of investigative reporting and interviewing everybody involved in this thing, was to figure out, well, so what really was going on? Because you only got to see what was the, the face of it on TV at the time, and there was all this inside um, kind of wheeling, dealing going on behind the scenes. And um, what you you know, what, what, what I... I really have to say, I think in the end of the day, I found the HBO uh, version of this a cop-out because we have learned over the years quite a bit more about what was going on behind the scenes and what you probably would have learned if there was Twitter in that era. But we do now know this thanks to a ton of reporting that's taken place. And and they 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 ducked in H HBO ducked. There's a lot of information about not just Angela Wright, but other women who wanted to come on and testify. And there were a ton of people who knew Clarence Thomas over the years who knew that he was obsessed with pornography. And there was the, we now know that the Washington Post was just about to print a story 
that was about all of the, the pornography videotapes that he was renting in Washington from one store that was filled with tapes about Long Dong Silver, somebody who he said he'd never even heard of, under oath. There, was, there is so much material now that is so damning that's come out over the years, yet um, HBO didn't want to go there. Um, I, and I think this means people still don't really want to face the truth, because if you face the truth, Unfortunately, there are consequences that people don't want to deal with politically. So, so let me come back to the question of this movie in one second. Let me just ask you a, a prior question to that. So you had a movie made on the basis of your book, right? The Showtime movie that got made, as I mentioned before, in 1999, um, called Strange Justice. What was that experience like for you? I mean, I have some experience in this area, too. Um, well, you, you know, in a way, we were not, um, Jill and I were not involved very much in the actual making of the sort of docudrama. And... Um, and I think in part because we wanted to have plausible deniability, we were afraid it might not turn out to be that good. We, we were very much devoted to sort of straight reporting and getting this story right. And, and, and truly, if it had been Anita Hill who had made up all this stuff and there was all of this incriminating evidence about, we would have written it that way. We were just looking for what was true. So um, when you turn that into a docudrama, they're not just thinking about what's true. They're thinking about how do you get the audience interested in it and turn it into a big drama. So they had, they made up some scenes and that made me really uncomfortable. It was just, you know, it was, it's, it's just a different art form from what, uh, what we were doing. And, um, so, I mean, that made, that made me, made us kind of uncomfortable, I have to say. Right. So you had the experience, you know, again, I, I think of people who've written books like your book or like Game Change or other books um, that get turned into docudramas as falling into one or two of two, one of two broad categories. Those who feel like that basically the movie stuck to what you wrote. And of course there's some uh, compression of characters or compression of scenes, but they're not essential. That like that's in the nature of movie making. They have to, they can't, you know, there, there's, there's some things that are going to get um, changed, but that they're not material to the facts that you reported in your book. And so you end up saying, this book is this movie is basically right, you know, and or the second category of people who feel as though the movie did some did some harm, did some uh, did, did some injustice to the reporting in some I don't, way. Yeah, I don't feel that this did harm, and it the, the the gist of it was right. But I mean, it's just that if you come out of the background that Jill Abramson and I do, we were reporters for the Wall Street Journal. You don't even play around with one fact, not one made-up scene, not one made-up quote. It's just, it's anathema to the way we work. So even though they actually did a pretty good job as docudramas go, and some of the acting was wonderful in it. Oh, you had a great cast in that movie. great cast. And it's just, it's just that anything that wasn't real to somebody like me... And Jill is is just unbelievably uncomfortable. I'm watching Jane actually so. physically squirm now at the memory <laughs> of the movie, um, even though you know you had Delroy Lindo in that movie. He was um, awesome. You had Manny yeah. Patinkin in that movie. Um, uh, and Ernest Dickerson was the director. Playing the Eric Stone Street role. I actually kind of like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, who it, Eric Stone Street plays in the We had some terrific acting, and the writing was also good. It was just, it's not, you know, if, if you're interested in the truth, ma'am, and only the truth, it's just not the way you roll. I'm, I'm, and telling, so, I'm telling you. But i got to say, that's it. It was incredibly fun to stay at the Bel Air Hotel for the opening right. and see the great big 
know, posters along Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. That part was really yeah. fun. I'm telling you, if I was Ken Duberstein and I had a choice between being, being played by Mandy Patinkin and Eric Stone Street, I know which one I'd choose. <laughs> um, <laughs> just saying. Um, so just it, so having watched Confirmation, right, and having had your you had a movie made on the basis of this, now you've seen Confirmation, right? So just talk about like whether the, the following things. You started to talk about one of the ways in which you feel like the HBO movie kind of copped out. Just talk about these, some characters. Well, okay. Well, let's just talk first All about right. some characters and whether okay. you think they captured how they behaved in that very fraught moment, whether it captures them well. So Joe Biden, right? To this day, I have Democratic women who still are pissed at Joe Biden for, well, I... for, how, for how the hearings were handled, right? So does confirmation capture well Joe Biden, or does it go too easy on Joe Biden, you think? I mean, he clearly captures his conflicts. I um, thought it was inching towards the truth, which is a good thing. It's better than where most people were started. I mean, it begins to show you he he wimped out, um, and, and you can see some of that there, but you don't really see why he wimped out. I mean, what we have to remember is Joe Biden, even at that time, was interested in running for president, and he did not want to deal with the consequences of this on his resume. He did not want to be the liberal Democrat who killed a black nominee for the Supreme Court. So, you know, you don't see that calculation with him. And um, he was also very uncomfortable with the idea of going into people's private sex lives. And he, he confessed this to, to people. He, he felt like, you know, this was territory that he, he, he just didn't, he, as a guy, he, and a guy's guy, he didn't like the feeling of this. And so you don't, you don't really see that. But at least you do see him wimping out a little bit. Right, and a Catholic, not only just a guy's guy, but a particular Catholic of a particular generation, this is not comfortable territory for Joe Biden. Absolutely. So, but at least you do, at least he's not shown as a hero of this. I mean, but you don't really see the full weight of what happened there. Uh, there were a number of women, Angela Wright, and then there was this older woman named Rose Jourdain, who was in the hospital at the time, who was a friend of Angela Wright's and remembered the whole story of what had happened to Angela Wright, which is that Clarence Thomas, she worked for Clarence Thomas, and he had asked her her bra size and talked to her about how he loved the hair on her legs and things like that, you know, all these inappropriate things. Rose Jourdain was this very wonderful, proper, older black woman who was in the hospital. She said, wheel me in on my, you know, gurney. I'm going to come in and testify. If you had seen Angela Wright testify, and then you had seen Rose Jourdain testify. From, it would have been over for Clarence It would Thomas. have been over. And it was within the power of Joe Biden to bring them on, and he did not. Do you think the movie captures, uh, let's just think about the two main protagonists. Do you think um, two people that one of whom I think you know better than the other, but um, Anita Hill and, and Clarence Thomas, do you think the movie captures them well and is fair to them? I, I thought the, the, the portrayal of Clarence was quite good. I, I was a little, I'm sorry to say, a little disappointed with Kerry Washington's portrayal of Anita Hill. To me, in, in those important moments where she is testifying, she seemed... She portrayed Anita as kind of um, cowering a little bit, you know, sticking to her guns, but she seemed kind of girlish. Her voice is a little high, and she just, she didn't have the power. And the uh, Anita Hill was just so calm and so powerful. And I, I, I somehow don't felt, I didn't feel that she pulled it off quite. Right. And let me ask you one last question before I turn you back over to Will. The, the, Ruth Marcus did, was, did, a, did an interview with uh, with New York Magazine with Vulture on the web that I just read um, yesterday, 
where she said this, she, she talked about one thing she thought the movie got right. And, and I just want to see if this rings true to you. She said, one of the things the movie does really well is evoke and remind those of us who lived through it about the absolute desperation and therefore the absolute scumminess of the behavior of people who in good faith believe Justice Thomas was telling the truth. Does that seem true to you? I mean, in terms of mostly, I don't think she's referring there to Republican members of the, of the committee and the ways in which they rallied to, to Thomas's defense. Does that well, seem, I mean, I think is that fair, absolute scumminess? Is that fair? Well, I mean, I don't know if you can call people scummy who are doing what by their own lights they think is true. Um, but perhaps she's talking about Jack Danforth, um, Senator Danforth, who stood by Clarence all the way through through this. And um, he, he, I think, has shown in a way that I'm glad to see is more critical. Um, he absolutely did not want to know the truth about Clarence Thomas. And I can tell you, I actually did an interview with him on Nightline where he, it was about the book that Jill and I wrote, which was filled with damning information about Clarence Thomas. And he, he, he didn't read it. He didn't want to read it. He didn't want to know. So, um, I mean, and I think that dug in sort of posture of these guys who don't want to know the real truth about Clarence Thomas comes through a little bit. Um, maybe also... They've got the scenes um, that show the senators, you know, searching for dirt, where they're looking for, for instance, this ridiculous idea that um, students who Anita Hill taught had pubic hairs returned to them in their term papers, and they just grasp it. Um, and, it, it, you know, I, I did the reporting on, on that, too. Those students, it was it was a racist joke with them. Obviously, it was a little hair from her head, and she is an African-American, and they joked that her hair on her head was like pubic hair. It was just, it was really vile. And, and, and the idea that U.S. senators would have glommed onto that and used it to try to portray her as sort of deviant in some way, it was, I mean, yes, in that sense, Ruth Marcus is right. That defines scummy. Yeah, so with the last question I, I had for you, I'm curious. One thing that I found frustrating about the movie was it doesn't seem to – it almost acts as if like, well, I guess we'll never know what what happened. And I'm wondering if that's frustrating for you as someone that's done so much reporting in this and has, has, has brought so much of this out. The movie is so – you talk about the coppa. It seems so hesitant to take a stance on, well, who was telling the truth? Well, I guess we'll never know. Well, that it's, is it, why it must have, It must be very frustrating. Yeah, it must totally. Be very I mean, I have to say, what is the point all these years later of right. of of it? In fact, takes you backwards um, from where we were. We now know there's an awful lot of reason to think. I'm sorry to say that Clarence Thomas was the one who was in the wrong in this in this epic confrontation, and um, and and the writer says, okay, it's Susanna Grant says in the interviews I've seen with her that she wasn't interested in who was right and who was wrong. She was interested in the process or, or sort of words to that effect. Well, well I mean, how can you turn, go to an ultimate confrontation over truth where both sides, one's lying and, and, and one's telling the truth and say that it doesn't matter which one's telling the truth? I, 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 I'm, I'm just stunned that anybody would go to all the trouble to make this documentary or docudrama with these fabulous actors and walk away from the one question that matters in it. That is a great place for us to end. Um, Jane, you are amazing and fabulous. And uh, actually, it turns out, as I expected, the perfect person to talk about this. So thank you. Jane Mayer is the author of Dark Money with the subtitle, 
The hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. I have to give that to you, not just because you should know it, also because it's way too long for me to possibly remember. The one thing I will say about this movie is that it, um, the one thing that really captures well is this concept of erato mania. And I did not believe erato mania existed until I met Will Leach. And Will Leach, you know, he's <laughs> just this, this, the, 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 this, this podcast that we do. Um, Culture Caucus is just, it's a, it's a living, breathing example, and every word that Will speaks is an example of his erotomania. <laughs> I, I find it a little uncomfortable sometimes because it's directed often towards me, um, but, uh, but I, I, again, I've had these moments where I think to myself, you know, God, I wish this would be a really great, even better podcast if Will wasn't just so erotically obsessed with me. I have been reading Jane, I have been reading Jane Meyer for so long and I'm such an admirer, and this is what we talk about when I finally get a chance to talk to her. Yeah, it's fantastic. I looked over just now and Alex Trowbridge has just had a, had a coronary and fallen over on the floor because he thought there was a chance we would get through this entire segment without saying anything that would make this NSFW, but yet again, we have failed. Jane Meyer, thank you. I'm honored to be in such high company. Um, <laughs> And that is the end of in another edition of the Culture Caucus. I'm John Heilman. And I am Will Leach Aratomania. <laughs> and we'll be back next time with another edition. We'll just remind everybody where they can find this podcast and what they're supposed to do when they listen to it. Of course, please go to iTunes. I, the best way to do it is to come to iTunes and give us a nice review. It's an easy way for people to find the podcast. Also, go to SoundCloud, of course, and you can also see us on BloombergPolitics.com. Good night and goodbye. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.